Good afternoon and happy Valentine's Day. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for being with us. My first guest today is the author and journalist Patricia Meisel. She has written a book about a pioneering woman who revolutionized care for children with heart problems and who was the force behind stopping the use of thalidomide, a drug that caused birth defects. Largely unknown to the general public today, in the years following the Second World War, Helen Brooke Tossig became internationally recognized as the poignant stories of the many children whose lives she transformed were covered in the press. And along the way, Dr. Tossig crossed paths with another pioneer, a black surgeon named Vivian Thomas, whose significance as a researcher and medical innovator only came to light years after Thomas did his groundbreaking work. Patricia Meisel's book is called A Heart Afire, Helen Brooke Tossig's Battle Against Heart Defects, Unsafe Drugs, and Injustice in Medicine. And she joins me today in Studio A. Pat, it's good to see you. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. And congratulations on the book. This is really an interesting read. And Helen Brooke Tossig is just an amazing character. Um, the, the subtitle of the book uh, is her battle against heart defects, unsafe drugs, and injustice. So let's take them in order. <laughs> when it comes to heart defects, there's a, a condition called tetralogy of fellow, uh, known uh, in the vernacular as blue babies. Um, so tell us what that condition was and how Helen approached it. Well, the initial uh, problem with children born with this condition is that their path to the lungs is blocked and not enough blood gets there to provide oxygen to the body. So they essentially suffocate if um, if they don't have any other ways for the blood to to become oxygenated. Um, and there's essentially four defects, in, but basically they all mean that blood flows away from the lungs and toward the body and um, they die. So she figured out uh, how to rearrange blood vessels to get the blood to the place where it needed to go. Well, amazingly, she realized that some children, they were infants, m- most of them initially, and she realized that some of them lived longer because they had a spare part. It was an extra blood vessel that didn't close after birth, and they this actually provided uh, blood um, to the lungs, and it was an alternate route, essentially. And so she reasoned, well... Um, Maybe we could create one of these out of existing blood vessels. And this was the problem she tried to sell to a surgeon. Uh, Initially in Boston, uh, a guy by the name of Robert Gross pretty much laughed at her. And then later, uh, when Alfred Blaylock came to Hopkins, he listened very carefully because he had a potential solution he had worked on in his lab for another reason. And Alfred Blaylock and the relationship between Alfred Blaylock and Helen Tossig uh, takes up a good bit of this story. It's really quite an interesting relationship. Blaylock, the man, uh, Tossig, the woman in a very male-dominated profession of medicine. She's one of the first women uh, to really, you know, uh, make a mark. Um, Tell us a little bit about Dr. Alfred Blaylock. He was a surgeon. Helen was not a surgeon herself, but Blaylock was, um, and he's quite a character, too. He is a character, and I will say he was brilliant. He was a leader of people, and that those are his great talents. He, he easily spot talent himself, um, including um, his assistant, Vivian Thomas. Um, but Who we should remind folks is a man. The, the, the yes. name Vivian, it's spelled with an E. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
and he um, he was a little bit of an autocrat, uh, as many men in lead- leadership positions in the fifties were. Same same at the University of Maryland, they had one of them, uh, and he um, really it, uh, Helen was was not his equal. It was an unequal relationship, and so um, he never expected to work with her, whereas she wanted to partner with him for the rest of their lives on these um, defects that she had discovered. And it was difficult. But on the other hand, he totally he respected her, <clears throat> and she respected him greatly. They trusted each other, and they were able to work out their differences. Um, she kept it private. He complained to his buddies. <laughs> it became somewhere in the files, so I got hold of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and they they invented something called the Blaylock Tossig shunt. And there are other people who refer to it as the Blaylock Tossig Thomas shunt because Vivian Thomas, uh, an African-American uh, surgeon uh, and researcher, uh, also plays a part in this story. But tell us what this, this shunt does. So this shunt mimics the... The shunt in in the fetus it takes blood from the um, aorta to to the um, to the lungs basically so it's it's a link that <clears throat> goes directly to the lungs so that um, blood can be oxygenated and it is it was carved from a piece of the uh, aorta the subclavian uh, vessel um, and and reattached to the pulmonary artery so it was a rearranged uh, route for blood to flow through the body to the lungs and then pick up oxygen, then go through the body. And she, and this was um, developed in the laboratory by Vivian Thomas, in, first in Nashville, for an experiment, completely different um, purpose. And then um, this was what, um, in Baltimore, Dr. Blaylock recognized could be used on Helen's patients once she explained the problem to him. Um, and it is what Vivian Thomas tested in the laboratory. On and, dogs, and his laboratory was was uh, doing experiments on dogs, mm-hmm. trying to. And, and once Vivian Thomas figured out the technique that allowed it to happen on dogs, Blaylock said, "Oh, I think I could do this on a on a human child." That's right. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. but it's Helen's idea mm-hmm. that Blaylock is implementing in the operating room, right? That's correct. Um, there's a dispute about whether she's she told him the specific vessels to rearrange. Um, and he says not. She says yes. Regardless, uh, they they worked. <laughs> but uh, in terms of the credit that was given to Blaylock and to, to Helen Tossig and to Vivian Thomas, for that matter, um, Blaylock uh, and, and Helen uh, certainly knocked heads about uh, who was to be recognized in the journals and the articles that they wrote about uh, this discovery and, and how it came to be and uh, how they, you know, the success rate of this thing ended up being really quite substantial, 80 percent at some at some point uh, in the not too, you know, not too far along in the in the uh, implementation of this. So Helen was right. In other words, Helen, Helen's theory worked and Blaylock, mm-hmm. you know, confirmed that it worked uh, any number of times. But uh, that whole dynamic of who gets credit for it uh, came to light in this story. She she was usually right, I should point out. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the shunt today is known by the three names officially. Um, and um, but she um, uh, 
She she yeah. she had it in her head before Blaylock oh. had it in in his uh, right. And she hand. <laughs> she felt strongly that she should get credit for the idea. Yeah. Um, more so than the the technical aspects of carrying it out. Um, and of course, this was a time when physicians looked down on surgeons as technicians. Um, it's a little different today. <laughs> yeah, I should and, say. Uh, so she really felt her work was more important because she had the problem, she had the solution, and then she sold it. These are three different skills. And, of course, he wouldn't have anything to do with it. And and the intermediary was uh, the chief of pediatrics at that time, Edwards Park, a really great guy. And he, he believed that Blaylock should be first on their paper in the names because he had his hand on the knife. And, and Vivian, Vivian Thomas was doing these... Uh, experiments to see if this shunt idea would work on dogs. Um, how unusual was it to have an African American uh, in a medical school, uh, a woman in a medical school at that point? I mean, when they, when the Hopkins was one of the first places, maybe the very first place to uh, admit women to medical school. Is that right? Uh, a few. There were a few. University of Michigan, University of California may have preceded actually, but um, it was one of the first science schools. So how unusual was it to have a black surgeon uh, working and doing experiments as well? It was very unusual, especially in Baltimore. But I will, and, and the laboratory at that time in, it, at Hopkins was in terrible shape, and not a lot went on, actually, uh, in, the, in the way of experiments. So he had to renovate the whole uh, place. And so it was very, very unusual. And if he, he had a story in one of his books where he walked around in a, in a white coat, like a doctor's coat, and people sneered at him, so he never wore it again. Yeah, yeah. So. And he did write an extensive memoir that you got mm-hmm. hold of. So, uh, you know, he had uh, recollections. He died in the 80s, uh, mm-hmm. and you you know, you know, were able to take advantage mm-hmm. of his recollections. So um, I understand you, you, you report that the children's hospital was actually integrated uh, by this uh, doctor you mentioned, Edwards Park, beginning in the late 1920s, 1928, and that's some 30 years before the adult wards were integrated. Why was it that they, you know, integrated the the kids uh, so, you know, three decades before the grown-ups? Well, at that time, there were a great many infectious diseases, and Edwards Park cared deeply about uh, finding cures for these diseases. And he wanted to separate the children with infectious diseases from children who didn't have these diseases. So it was a medical decision that benefited the children. And he didn't, he just did it arbitrarily, he didn't ask permission. It was quite um, radical for him to do that in Baltimore. Yeah, so he had, he divided them by disease rather than by color. Yeah. That's right. But they weren't doing that with the grown-ups. No. Yeah. <laughs> Patricia Meisel, the book is called A Heart of Fire, Helen Brooke Tossig's Battle Against Heart Defects, Unsafe Drugs, and Injustice in medicine. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you have a question or comment about Dr. Helen Brooks Tossig, 410-662-8780 or email midday at wipr.org. Um, so uh, it's also interesting that uh, both Helen uh, and uh, Vivian Thomas had African-American assistants. So there were other people working in the hospital, people of color working in the hospital, uh, even in, you know, 1940s, 1950s in Hopkins. That's interesting. Um, there were some part-time people. Um, Hel- Helen's assistant actually was in her home. Um, so, uh, and of course, Vivian Thomas was there. And there may have been others. I am not sure. But I do know that um, 
it, maybe in the 50s, there were part-time uh, African-American doctors working. Yeah. Um, and Helen Brooks Tausick uh, also uh, plays a big role in discovering that the drug thalidomide caused birth defects. Um, what was her role in that regard? This is separate from her work on the hearts. Right. And the connection is sometimes hard to see. Why would she do this? So I'll just address that. It was all about reducing or preventing suffering. And what she realized when she heard about thalidomide, which was in her living room up on Falls Road, a German doctor visiting told her about these babies being born with defects in Germany. Um, and and thalidomide was like a sleeping pill yes. that pregnant women took? It was thought to be, uh, th- these defects were thought to be related to this um, sleeping pill, thalidomide. It wasn't, it wasn't only for pregnant women, but it was often targeted at them marketing-wise. Um, and she thought to herself, she's 62 at that time, she had been basically trying to uh, help children with defects her entire career, and now suddenly it occurred to her that maybe this was the cause of some of the defects, not just heart defects, we didn't know yet, birth defects, um, maybe it all could have been prevented. So she got on a plane within weeks of this uh, conversation and went over there to to um, Germany. The drug manufacturer denied the connection because there was no proof in the laboratory. She went around to 10 different clinics and um, gathered massive amounts of data in a tiny little green notebook, like five by seven. It was you know, way before computers. And um, basically drew a correlation between the the time the mother took the pill, the development of the fetus, and the defect in the in the newborn, and they all matched up. And uh, by that point, she was already pretty famous because people were flocking to Baltimore mm-hmm. to have Dr. Blaylock mm-hmm. operate on their children with heart defects. And mm-hmm. Helen uh, Tosig is the one, uh, you know, accepting these patients and telling Dr. Blaylock, "Okay, here's one. Here's the heart defect." go do the procedure. Um, and and uh, the press picked this up. I mean, a lot of people all around the country knew about her and knew about this work, which is what caused the, the big rush to, to come to Hopkins, right? That's right. And she, um, she used her fame to help her patients. And this, this is one of the reasons I think of her as, uh, that reveals her to be a great person. Uh, it wasn't just the heart surgery and then I'm done. She kept moving um, and used her um, her connections and her ability to to um, to reach the public, and she campaigned. She came home and she campaigned in the first to the medical community, and when that didn't really get a lot of traction, she campaigned. She took it public. She went all over. She um, went on TV. She went to magazines. She wrote for JAMA, a very important article. Um, and at one point, uh, a lot of these magazines they wouldn't accept photos of the thalidomide babies that she had brought back with her. And she was desperate. She, um, this very gracious, impeccably mannered woman, sent photos to the National Enquirer, which did publish it. And Americans were horrified. And she was a galvanizing force in the uh, passage of the 1962 amendments to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act, which regulate, which gave us federal drug regulation. Yeah, so it banned the use of the thalidomide and and all of these, you know, defects stopped. Well, I mean, there were still defects, but they were caused by other things. Right, and we we didn't actually, that was the other interesting thing. There were no thalidomide, uh, thalidomide was not yet marketed in the country. There were lots of pills, thousands, it turns out, in doctors' offices. And she was the first to warn doctors uh, quite publicly, uh, get those pills back, um, tell your patients not to take them. And she really was a pioneer for women in the field of medicine. Uh, And it's interesting that these days, in in 2022, uh, women made up uh, nearly 54% of medical school 
students, uh, and they overtook uh, men as a majority back in 2019. So there are still more women in medical school than men. So uh, in terms of numbers, uh, it's evening out. But in terms of the dynamics in medical schools, I know you've already given a number of talks about this book. Um, you know, how are you? How are you? What are you hearing from the women in medical schools uh, about the dynamics, the the gender dynamics uh, in that field? Well, one question people ask is, what would Helen say? What advice would Helen give women today? And the real, the first thing is, do what you love. Um, because that is going to be a re- real re- reward. And that is certainly how she lived her life. Um, and um, But yes, it, there are much better um, situations for women nowadays, uh, but it's still not perfect. And uh, we're fine. all kinds of issues are cropping up, and, P- and good schools are still working on it, and women are advancing. But it hasn't been very long at all. It, uh, some of the older doctors I talked to, maybe in the, they, they arrived in the 70s through the 90s, and there were, they were not a majority in their class. I, or obviously, they were not, but there, there might have been 10 women in their section. Yeah. So not Same a lot. thing in the field of law. You know, Absolutely. We, we all, yeah. Many of us are familiar with like Ruth Bader Ginsburg's uh, experience in mm-hmm. law school, et cetera. Um, and the other thing that's interesting about, or many things interesting about Helen Brooke Tossig, um, is the personal barriers that he ha- she had to overcome. She was dyslexic. Um, so reading uh, articles and reading stuff was difficult for her, uh, for anybody who suffers from dyslexia. She overcame that. She had whooping cough as a child, and that led her to become deaf. So here's a, a person who's diagnosing uh, little kids' hearts. You'd think, you know, you have to use your ears for that uh, in a very sensitive way. She, she's an amazing character. Well, two things on the d- dyslexia. She She was a... Um, person who could see through the trees. You know, she was a very precise, almost, in, you know, very difficult difficult because she was so pr- precise sometimes, but she also saw the big picture. So she could think differently, and that is how she could, what she, that's how she succeeded. Um, and on the, her deaf, her condition of deafness, she would say later in her life that she was grateful because it brought her closer to her patients. And what she meant by that was she had to touch them. She had to use her hands on their chest to feel, to listen to the sounds of their hearts. Now, her hands were not her only tool. She had um, access to um, something called a fluoroscope, which is like an x-ray, but it's actually mo- watches the heart at work while it's, it's a moving picture. So that was really instrumental. Um, in her discoveries and her diagnoses, but she, um, but she mainly used her hands. And uh, by the 1950s, she could um, detect, uh, she could determine a disease or condition of a child when they walked through the door. She was that good. Yeah. Um, her eyes too. I mean, it was her eyes. It was her hands. She it was like her whole body was in this diagnosis. Yeah, it's amazing. And mm-hmm. she was tireless. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the 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 things that she took on. She's the first pediatrician and the first woman to be the president of the American Heart Association. She got the Medal of uh, Honor from uh, Lyndon Johnson in the '60s. I mm-hmm. mean, it, there was like no challenge she didn't accept. She, <laughs> I just I, I read this book. I was exhausted. <laughs> And you know she was nominated for the Nobel forty-seven times. Um, yeah, that's right, forty-seven and, times. <laughs> but the the thing that she really most wanted was recognition as a scientist. So it wasn't until the seventies that she was um, elected to the National Academy of Sciences, and this was a sore point for her. Of course, she was delighted to be elected at that time, but she felt that she should have been elected um, many years earlier. So uh, we don't know why that is because those records are sealed. 
And um, one of one of the uh, uh, themes of the book is a painting of her uh, that you follow the sort of uh, the provenance of. Um, how is Helen Brooke uh, Tossig, you know, uh, thought of, revered, uh, considered at Johns Hopkins Hospital uh, and medical school these days? Well, she's qu- quite admired, and her. Um, it, image, different images of her are um, posted throughout the school, especially in the students, uh, medical students' lounges where these um, images were first revealed to the publicly or, you know, inside the medical school. So, yeah, there are plenty of images, and she's definitely a person of honor there. And there's um, several, some services are named after her. Yeah. Um, And uh, you also, uh, you you told me uh, when we were chatting about this uh, earlier, that there was another book you read that sort of led you to figure out what was going on with Helen Brooke Tossig, and that's about another woman here in Baltimore, very, very important because it's her funding of the medical school, her funding of places like the Bryn Mawr School, which is a private school for girls here in North Baltimore, that sort of was the stepping stone to allow a Helen Brooke Tossig to thrive. That's the remarkable story of Mary Elizabeth Garrett, railroad heiress, and she and her friends on Friday nights would meet at Mount Vernon Square to figure out how they could get um, more children, more girls educated. And they did found the Bryn Mawr School. And but importantly, they made a deal with doctors at Hopkins, who had a hospital, but not the medical school. That we they would build the medical school on condition it admit women. And that's not all they did. They they made sure that the women had a place to stay because that was the reason why women were rejected from medical school. So there was a boarding house and there was a room, a crying room inside the school for the women, <laughs> and uh, and research money after they graduated. So it was sustained. And this approach really appealed to me in this book. Yeah. It was a sustained effort to change. Well, it's an interesting story of, of women, of race, of power, mm-hmm. the dynamics. You know, it's just it's really it's fascinating. Patricia Meisel, her new book is called A Heart of Fire. Helen Brooke Tossig's battle against heart defects, unsafe drugs, and injustice in medicine. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you about it. Thank you. Up next, the classical music star Natalie Klein. She's a great cellist. She's playing a concert on Saturday at Howard Community College, and we'll talk about it on the other side of a quick break. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is Baltimore's NPR News Station, 881 WYPR.